1: Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Gary Bowles. Gary is chair for the Future of Work at the Singularity University, the author of The Next Rules of Work, and an expert in how jobs, teams, and organizations will evolve in the years ahead. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our website, FuturatiPodcast.com. Gary, thanks so much for coming on the show.
0: Oh, thanks for inviting me, guys.
1: Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems you're working on today.
0: No, absolutely. So uh, I have three hats that I spend constantly nowadays. I'm the chair for the future of work with Singularity University, uh, which is neither about the singularity nor university. So we have some identity problems that we're working on. Very good. <laughs> uh, I, um, I'm the author of a new book called The Next Rules of Work. I have a small but mighty consulting company based in San Francisco called Charette, where we focus on initiatives with impact, mostly to do with the future of work, the future of learning, and the future of the organization. And uh, then we have a small but mighty software company uh, called eParachute that is built from the knowledge of what color is your parachute, the world's enduring career manual, And then finally, I've got uh, nine courses on LinkedIn Learning with over 1 million learners uh, that have um, topics like developing a learning mindset and learning agility.
1: So I I didn't do real well in math, but I count five hats there. That sounds like you said five
0: things. Well, so the book is typically part of my consulting company. (laughs) And the (laughs) courses are typically part of eParachute, but uh, you can just sort of lump them all. Three
1: hats. Two of which have an extra feather in them. Yeah, exactly.
0: Feather. Yeah. feather hat system. Nice yeah, analogy. So, so the,
2: the big topic today is everybody's talking about the great resignation, about people quitting their jobs. Yeah. And um, uh, I'd like to like to hear a little bit about that from your perspective. What's, what's going on there and what's driving that?
0: So first off, uh, I'm a recovering journalist. I used to be the editorial director of a half a dozen technology magazines. And journalists god love them they tend to focus on problems that they can see and so it just so happens that the great resignation in some cases is a high class set of problems Um, you can think of it as the venn diagram of what is unique about you what you would imagine to be the absolute perfect use of your skills experiences and other abilities and then what your current work is and when you feel like that's a really good match there's a lot of overlap in the venn diagram life is good you're doing the right kind of work and then when a virus comes along and makes you re-examine a lot of the priorities in your life and we break the seal on what used to be traditional work i always say there's sort of six different facets of the diamond of work it's the six w's the who what when where how and why and the where (laughs) <laughs> when we broke the seal on that, we said, oh, you know, you don't have to do that horrible commute anymore. You don't have to go to this you know, cubicle farm. Uh, for many people that had that high-class opportunity, it offered the chance to be able to rethink their work. Now, there's other workers that we often call frontline workers, and their jobs in many cases got worse <laughs> You're the one at the restaurant door that has to check the vaccination cards. You're the one in the hospital that has to be yelled at by the family when their policies only allow one person because of COVID lockdowns. And so you add up all those different calculus factors for people in their work, and the Venn diagram can actually stop being as much of a good overlap. And so that can be very empowering for certain people. It can define a lot of agency. And if there's anything we've inherited from the old rules of work, it's that a lot of cases we sort of lose our agency. We fall into a job. We stop growing and changing and developing as a human being. We stop thinking we've got a tremendous amount of power and we just sort of, all right, I'll do that work for as long as I need to. But the pandemic has been, as I call it, a great reset of a lot of that thinking.
1: And so what do you think the long-term consequences of this great reset will be? Do do you think people are going to go back to their jobs? Is the change in mindset kind of fundamental and permanent? Some things are really
0: hard to bungee cord back to. (laughs) Once you've tasted the ability to make the, uh, these have the agency to make these decisions about your own work. It's very, very hard to go back to that. Once you've tasted the relative amount of freedom of being able to work from home and choose your schedule and coordinate and collaborate with your team members about when and with whom you're working on any given day or hour or week. All of those things are very difficult to snatch back from workers once they've had them. So if you've felt empowered because of this great reset, then chances are really good you're going to continue to leverage that power. The challenge for many of those who lead in organizations is that they were trained in the old rules of work, command and control, hierarchy. If I see them, I can, I call this management by surveillance. If I can see them, I can control. I know they're doing their work. And when I can't see them, oh, maybe they're not doing their work. And many companies, it was an epiphany to find out that productivity could actually increase if you weren't there constantly urging them to do the next thing. So that's going to be a challenge for many who lead in organizations is, especially in companies like financial services firms, the CEOs have announced, oh, we're coming back to the office. And the workers have said, not so fast.
2: <laughs> no, we're not. We will leave. Yeah, I just had a dental appointment, and that's one of those that you can't do virtually. Well, not yet. I, I mean, I, with, I wish with, you could with
1: telemedicine, which is progressing by leaps and bounds. Some someday they'll be able to. Yeah, maybe work have
0: a home, <laughs>
2: drone drone fly over and work on my mouth. I don't yeah, know about it. The problem doesn't. is you've got to get
0: lots of sharp things at home to poke yourself with. Uh, you know, and, and I don't know how many people are actually going to do that. They just send you a
1: YouTube video, like do the things in this video, and your mouth. Will
0: yeah, be yeah, right. Yeah, and here's here's a bunch of sharp objects you could use while you're doing it. So, yeah.
1: so we, we looked at this from the perspective of, of the workers and, and they have been kind of the star of the show, but given your consultancy and some of the, the work that you've done on how organizations will change over time, how do you think organizations are permanently different as a result of the great resignation, the great reset?
0: So CEOs ask me all the time, why are all these people walking into my company now asking about purpose? Like <laughs> what's up with that? <laughs> I... I Nobody ever asked me what the purpose of my company was before (laughs) and why is it that they walk in the door and on day one, they're asking about purpose and on day two, they want to be in charge. Like they want to define their own work hours and they want to determine which problems they can focus on and they want to determine who they want to work with. And so there's all this agency going on. So those who lead in organizations, and incidentally, you'll probably notice I haven't used the word leader once. I think we've lost the meaning of I, I, I call it the leadership industrial complex. We've, we've got a chain of, of an endless list of books going back to In Search of Excellence in the 1980s, where we have this mythical belief that if you're just the perfect leader, that everything in the world and everything in your organization will be just fine. I use leading as a verb. Um, I say those who lead in organizations because I think this is a sea change. I think what's happening is those who lead within organizations, and that can be what we used to call a manager and I call a team guide with just a single team, or it can be a person who actually is responsible for a much larger group within the organization. But I think it's a sea change because this shift towards a focus on purpose, having more and more agency of human beings Breaking the seal on uh, what's often called remote work, but I call distributed work, and being more responsible for the whole human being. Uh, I show in my book A Picture of an Iceberg. I say, if you're somebody who led in an organization, you used to believe you were only responsible for understanding this tiny little bit about that human being above the waterline, this tiny little skill set. And that's what I hired you for, and that's all I care about, to know about you. And then on the first Zoom call, you're looking into the home of this person that you've worked with for years, and you say, I didn't know you have kids. I don't know you have a dog. You've got a guitar on the wall. You play guitar. You've got a sick ad. None of those things, as far as we were concerned, below the waterline were either our responsibility or needed to be on our radar screen. And now in the pandemic era, we've realized, oh, these are whole human beings, and we're responsible for them. So I think that is a very, very difficult shift to go back. Now, I just did a talk for the Danish ministry last week where they just said, yeah, 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 we've done that for a long time. (laughs) We cared about the whole person for a long time. (laughs) So there are plenty of cultures around the world where this is not an epiphany. But here in America, we have this unique inheritance from the old rules of work, many of which came from the industrial era and we've instantiated that into corporate hierarchy, into the power dynamics, into the roles of those who lead in organizations. And it's a big shift for a lot of those people to be able to adapt. Uh, but I feel they're they're up to the challenge if they just have the right mindset.
2: Yeah. Over the weekend, I, um, I went to a restaurant where uh, there was a robot that took us to our table, and then uh, and then. Once we ordered, we ordered through the waitress, and then the uh, the robot would go. Well, it actually delivered all the the plates and the table settings, and then uh, the waitress put it in place. And then once once our order was in uh, was taken, then a little bit later the robot came out with the food. And then uh, the waitress came, took it off the robot, and put it on the tables. And then uh, afterwards, when she's cleaning up the the tables, she put all the dirty dishes on the robot, and they took them back. And so uh, it wasn't a replacement at all for people. It just made the people's job easier. Um, and so we're. It seems like we're seeing a lots of additional automation, and all of this is going to get. Uh, in, in place incrementally, not not just all at once, and so what? What's your uh, kind of take on the the changing pace of automation as a result of all this?
0: So first off, uh, like you guys, I, I'm, a, I'm sure you're a fan of uh, William Gibson's uh, famous phrase: "The future is already here; it's just not evenly distributed." Yep. All right. And so that happens with work all the time is there are plenty of examples i just wrote an article on the impact of automation is plenty of examples throughout history going back to the luddites of where we've used technology aristotle was afraid that we were going to come up with some kind of robot that was going to play the lyre or that was going to do the work of slaves and so you know these fears have been around for a long time and justifiably so in a lot of different arenas so there are many places where People are doing, you think of it as kind of the lower left-hand corner of the landscape, where people are doing repetitive, dirty, mindless work that has always been automated and will continue to be automated. So there's a lot of stuff, especially in the Great Reset, where a lot of the people who are hiring can't find workers to do that stuff in the lower left-hand quadrant. It's crappy work. And so you'll always see automation thrown at that. Now, now automation moves in big fits and starts. And so when you get a big reset like this, as you did during the great recession, as a matter of fact, when you get a great reset like this, when you can't hire people, you're gonna throw more technology at it. You're also gonna do that to reduce costs. And you're also gonna do it in some cases to improve efficiency. And that's why we have things like robotic process automation and white collar jobs that is automating a lot of tasks. What a lot of people, what I urge people to understand is that robots and software don't take away jobs. They simply automate tasks. It's a human's decision if a job goes away and we can make different decisions. So in the example you just gave, the waitress was offloading a bunch of rotten tasks. I was a waiter for a grand total of three weeks at the omelet shoppy in Jackson, Mississippi on the graveyard shift. (laughs) Uh, And at least for me, that was not a thrilling experience, so I don't recommend it. But some people, you know, sure, you might like that. You might like the people part of it, but all the other mundane parts of it, you want to offload. The problem is that we call a 100% offloaded person unemployed. So you need to continually, as an employer, make the commitment that you're going to train and retain those workers to keep on doing the new and interesting stuff and not just keep throwing a whole bunch of automation so that you don't need human skills anymore.
2: Yeah, as as we automate more and more tasks, we, um, we reduce the number of people that are needed to do all those tasks then. Um, and so I, I, I like to use the, um, the example of somebody that's a meter reader that would go out and read the meter on houses or businesses. And as soon as that gets automated and the information gets sent in wirelessly, then a person no longer has to go out and read those meters. But the meter readers did a lot more than just read the meters. And so pieces of their, their job got eliminated and the whole workload got redefined. And naturally it can be done with fewer people, but it, it, uh, the job itself doesn't go away. Um, and so I, th- I think we, we see a lot of that moving forward in the future and whether it's uh, toll booth operators or parking lot attendants or things like that, lots, lots of those get automated down to uh, a lot less. Um, so where the people that were doing those jobs in the past, where, where do they go? Um, how do they upskill to a new profession then
0: so a couple of things so so first off there are plenty of opportunities in many organizations if an organization is of any size we've been automating tasks for forever those luddites that i mentioned that was about you know automating the weaving process right. and uh, incidentally the luddites were not anti technology they were anti power dynamic, they were getting paid less because (laughs) there were people that owned the automated looms that they had to simply tend and they made less and less money. So so long as a hirer is continually making the commitment that that work will morph, that is you're losing a certain number of tasks and gaining a bunch more and hopefully higher end tasks that you're being paid better for, everybody wins. It's in the United States, especially, we have a peculiar form of work economy where we tend to treat those people as discardable. We are not investing in training them. And so first step, the organization needs to take that responsibility. Second step, individual needs to take the responsibility. But we can't simply say to a person, oh, I'm sorry, you did not quote unquote upskill yourself fast enough. That just sounds to me like the industrial era processes that we're all trying to leave behind. I, there's nothing wrong with training. There's no longer to the retraining. There's nothing wrong with learning. So long as we are continuous learners, we have a growth mindset, we're continually curious about new things, we want to learn new things, we've got a learning portfolio, we've got a North Star about the things that we want to learn. So long as we're driven, we have the agency as individuals and the organization is supporting that and providing us the resources to do that, then everything works out fine. It's when organizations have this discardable mindset towards workers that it doesn't work out fine. And you get these massive mismatches in the Venn diagram of the demand of a workforce and the supply.
2: Does this mean more union jobs moving
0: forward? Good question. So the truth is uh, in the United States, we've had this secular decline in membership and anything that looks like collective voice, collective action, and collective negotiation. Uh, At one point, nearly 40% of all the workers in the 1950s in the United States were covered under some kind of collective action agreements. And now, uh, if you go outside of government, it's less than 10%. And so there's no question that the power dynamic now dramatically serves the organization more than it serves the worker. In the uh, 1970s, the ratio of the CEO's pay to the average worker in the United States, it's S&P companies, was 20 to one. Today, it's 300 to one. And I don't think CEOs of today are 15 times more valuable than the CEO of the 1970s. So you're right, is that that actually is one of the tools that needs to be in the toolkit as more work becomes unbundled, as it becomes more gig work, as it becomes more project work, more than there's many Silicon Valley companies where more than half of their workers are actually part-timers or contract workers, that power dynamic gets shifted to the organization. And there's no question if you look at other countries like the Nordic countries like Germany, where the power dynamic is much more balanced the impact of the virus and the shutdown policies on their unemployment systems was minimal, tiny. Germany went from about 5.4 to about 6.7% unemployment. And we went to just short of the unemployment level of the Great Depression in three weeks. Yeah,
2: so as as, uh, as companies start using more and more gig workers to fill in, uh, rather than hiring somebody full-time because there's, there's lots of implications of bringing on a full-time person. But you bring on a gig worker just to do something that might be working for two, two weeks or two months or two days or even two hours. Um, you eliminate a lot of those responsibilities that go along with that. And, and so at the same time, though, the, the company itself starts to lose a lot of the institutional knowledge that gets built up around the workers that are part of the workforce. There, um, how much do you see that as being a problem moving forward?
0: So, uh, gig, worth, gig work giveth and gig work taketh away. So, <laughs> there's there's a. I always say we're going to talk about religion. So, okay, so so there's there's a there's a whole bunch of positive aspects for individuals and organizations when you atomize work, when you unbundle it and break it apart. So you get, for the individual, a, trendis- a tremendous amount of autonomy, a lot of flexibility, a lot of choice, and uh, and that also means mobility, potentially, because if you don't like the work you're doing for one client, you can shift to another one very quickly if you're considered to be in demand. For the organization, it provides also flexibility. It means far less of the commitment that you're talking about, uh, uh, and uh, and it certainly means that you have the ability to Get groups of people to dynamically bind around problems in ways that, if you've got long hiring practices, you could never do before. For the individual, what do you lose? You lose stability. You lose certainty. You, learn, you lose um, uh, commonality of income, and uh, and you lose a lot of power because you're not an employee anymore. You don't have a vote, and so so that's there are there are ways to solve that. Uh, and then for the organization, what does it lose? You're right. Uh, institutional memory, it loses a lot of the engagement with the organization, and it loses an awful lot of the linkages, human linkages between people because they're seen as disposable. You get essentially two different classes. And so, uh, Europe is trying, you know, the Europe, EU is trying to solve this in a number of ways. They just passed a couple of laws that said, well, companies, I'm sorry, you get all these benefits of these gig workers, you've got to pay them micro benefits, you've got to pay them micro leave. You have to be able to pay into pools because you've been essentially benefiting from not having these responsibilities that you had with your day workers. And all of those things are beneficial to the workers without them losing a single thing that they get in terms of the benefits from before. So this is simply the way that we as a country in the United States have accepted the way, the, the power dynamic designed into two-sided market platforms. Think of it this way. There's only three players when you use Uber or DoorDash. Or There's only three players. It's demand. That's you, the customer. You're the one that's ordering the food. It's supply. That's the messy, expensive human, the worker. And it's the platform. Two out of three will always win the demand and the platform, the customer and the company that is providing the access to the workers. The workers will always lose because... They are the supply they, you're going to continually have downward compression on wages, they're going to continually have poorer working conditions because the customer is king. The, the platform will always try to benefit the customer so it can make its own money. So, these are all fixable problems, and the EU has decided, Yeah, we want to have some control over that. In the United States, especially in the state of California, where we've actually passed laws that are for, forfeited laws to change that power dynamic, uh, we let the platforms make those decisions.
2: So in in the movie industry, the way the movie industry has worked for years is whenever a mo- movie project comes into play, it attracts writers, directors, camera guys, actors and actresses, and makeup people. And they all come together for this project. As soon as it's over, they, they organically dissipate and move to other projects wherever they're located. Um, they've somehow managed to unionize the guilds so that um, so that they're not um, kind of left out to fight for their own uh, survival all the time. And, and I, f- <clears throat> I find that interesting because as we create this whole new generation of gig workers, it would seem like there's the potential for uh, new kinds of gig worker guilds to be formed and coming out of the woodwork, what what's your take on that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the, they they work really well in verticals. They work well in specific industries and they don't work as well with horizontals. And so again, the platforms benefit. The, the more you are segmented and you do not have the capacity to be able to do any kind of collective voice, collective action or collective bargaining, then the power dynamics stay shifted towards the hirer or the platform. So you're exactly right. I point to the, um, the entertainment industry all the time as a great example. What people who work in that arena have accepted and embraced is what I call a portfolio of work. You've got a network. That network is continually sending you market signals about what opportunities there are, what projects there are. The projects themselves, They're called movies. They're designed so that they have a start and an end, and there is an arc, and they need certain talent inserted at different points, and it's a a creative process, so there's there's a chance to be able to do some uh, collaboration and co-creation, and then hopefully your sensor network has told you where some of the next projects might come, and you have hopefully built the skill set to be able to manage a portfolio of work. Well, some talented programmers do this, some project managers do this, but for the most part, there's many industries where we simply don't have that built-up skill set to be able to manage a portfolio of work. And we also don't have the history of collective voice, collective action, and collective bargaining that you can plug into. So we as individuals, we have to have more agency. We've got to seek out others like us in verticals. And then over time, we've got to build more of that connecting tissue across horizontals. And there are some great attempts to do that. They're simply not
1: scaled as yet. So, so would it be fair to say that the movie industry is perhaps not uniquely well-suited, but pretty well-suited to solving this particular kind of problem, this collective action problem with gig workers, and that part of the solution to it more broadly would be figuring out how it's worked and scaling up solutions that are promising?
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I'll say there's one thing that's missing, which is, uh, and it does happen. Um, my, my wife was a Hollywood executive for a number of years. And so you do see sometimes where people that were working on these movie projects end up getting jobs in some of the studios, right? So, but but the opportunity that many organizations are missing is to be able to thinking the mindset of what I, what I call a work net. If you think of this as a fabric of human beings, in a range of different use cases. And at the core, they're what we call traditional employees, but there's a whole range of different use cases of contractors and gig workers and cloud workers and subcontractors. And all of that is a flow of human capacity to be able to solve problems and create value for the organization stakeholders. And if you have that mindset, what you're going to do is you're going to change your hiring practices because you will already have a lot of great indications about amazing workers who've worked on projects for you and who could dynamically bind around a set of problems, which you would call hiring, to be able to plug themselves into specific work groups. But that's a skill set. Like You have to have have that mindset that that's the way you're thinking about it is a flow of humans to continually coalesce around the problems for your stakeholders. And then you have to have a skill set for doing that. And you've got to take the responsibility for baking in all these other values that we're talking about. You can't just treat them as disposable workers. You've got to authentically engage them in the work of the organization. So you're right, that model is really useful. But I encourage those who lead in organizations to take it the next step, which is to also think about that this is a flow of humans that you can be continually plugging into a range of different opportunities. But you also have to make sure that the work is more problem and project centric. That's what a movie is. It's a, you know, we have to have a movie to ship to the theaters on a certain date or to stream online, and everything backs up from that. So that's the way that those who lead in organizations need to think differently going forward.
2: So is the career ladder dead? I mean, a lot of Gen Z and Gen Y think that there's there's no way no use in dedicating a lot of time and energy to one company because you're not going to move up this ladder. You're not going to eventually become the CEO of the company. It's the, that whole idea is, is uh, you know, kind of historic thinking that, uh, just doesn't exist anymore.
0: So, so first off, I, I agree with you. I think in many cases that is no longer the, um, Uh, that is an old rule of work. As a matter of fact, uh, Matt Siegelman, the CEO of Burning Glass, has famously said, the bottom may be coming out of the career ladder. Uh, but I, my favorite phrase is from Lori Gowler, who is still the head of people uh, for uh, Meta, the, the company formerly known as Facebook. Uh, and uh, <laughs> she says, I think of my career as a jungle gym, not a ladder jumping from rung to rung, side to side, up and down, learning new things, pursuing new experiences, and focusing as much on the journey as the destination. And so that's where I think the real opportunity is. Um, you're right, the, you're, if you are the best Uber driver on the planet, you're not gonna become an executive at Uber. That's just not gonna happen. There's a, the ladder, there is no ladder. Right. You're on the first rung, you're gonna stay on the r- first rung. But, uh, but I tend to help people think about this in, in terms of much more of a set of inflection point decisions and the aggregation of skills and experience over time. The old model of a career was often what my father, uh, who wrote a book called What Color Is Your Parachute, and then another book called uh, Three Boxes of Life. In the Three Boxes of Life, he said we had these this career arc was sort of this big chunk of learning, then this big chunk of work, and then a big chunk of leisure in what I call the period formerly known as retirement. And when you're in the big chunk of work, it was essentially just a linear path, right? I mean, that's, that's you were trying to keep on going up in a particular organization. Now, it's not that that's dead. It's simply that uh, young people nowadays, they see that the loyalty, the, the old rules of work, the, the, the connection between a worker and an employer has eroded. And so they understand that they have more potential mobility, especially if they have an independent skill set. But they also realize that the steps on the ladder that they were told over and over again in prior generations you had to follow, they see people leapfrogging that all the time and bouncing into new roles that had nothing to do with a linear career path. So sure, there are still organizations that encourage that. Uh, There's still a lot of sort of old rules hierarchies where you do come in at the mailroom and come out the other end at the CEO. It's just that's a reduced number of use cases. And it's also gonna be increasingly challenging in the COVID era because all of the social cues, all the social fabric that used to have when you were in a physical workplace, so many of those have eroded now. You may not even feel that level of connection with your coworkers if all you've ever done is to see them on a Zoom call. And so that is a new world order. That's a new, brave new world of work where we're asking a whole bunch of young people, especially to come up with new ways to be able to continually aggregate skills and then find out how they can match up in an organization to the best possible work for them. And so that is going to be a new set of hiring practices for employers. It's going to be a new set of management practices for those who lead teams. And we're all co-creating those rules together. This is, a, this is a, it's a brave new world where you can't guarantee that a lot of the organizations that in the past relied so heavily on those hierarchies are going to be able to maintain them. One of the themes
1: that we have been circling around is this idea of cultural shifts, both among job seekers and among employers and organizations. I think it's fair to say, based on what's been said so far, that part of the solution both to the fracturing of jobs into gigs and the added dynamic of automation is, number one, organizations investing more in their people and not treating them as discardable. And number two is people... Taking more of taking more of a purposeful stance towards their own advancement, whether it's building a portfolio or upskilling over time. Do you have any thoughts on the best way to get people to realize that these changes are necessary and to actually
0: implement them? So you you've hit the nail on the head of of one of the biggest challenges, which is behavioral change, right? So I I talk in my book a lot about mindset, skill set, and tool set. So. Think of the organization's culture as the aggregate mindset and behavior of all the people in the organization. And so, and I talk a lot in the book about how you actually do engineer a cultural shift, the ways that you help people to be able to develop a new mindset and to, to act in different ways. And it turns out the research is, is very clear and very disheartening. About 15% of these initiatives are successful, and 85% fail. And they fail typically because those who lead in the organization do not authentically sign up for the kinds of behavior changes that are necessary. They won't change their own mindsets. They won't change their own behavior. They simply want others to do it. Uh, they they manage risk in the old ways. They continually tamp down on dramatic change because they don't feel that they can control it. And so you end up, these things, these processes end up failing. So I'd start with the mindset shift. If you think of every individual in your organization as a problem solver, if you think of every single person as being able to add value to the stakeholders of the organization, and if you can create the kind of fabric, the kind of construct that allows them to all self-aggregate, continually bind around new problems for those those, uh, stakeholders, not just customers, but uh, other workers, suppliers, partners, the communities in which you work and the planet, So long as you can create that dynamic fabric where you're empowering people to be able to continually find and solve new problems, your organization is going to be able to make that shift. But if instead you are locked into the old ways of working, you you want to bungee cord back into the office. You want to push people back in their traditional work roles. You want to take away all the autonomy and agency that they had you're going to find you're not necessarily going to have the kind of support from your workers that you had before.
2: So, so I have I have a lot of really young grandkids. And my thinking is, is that uh, these, these grandkids, as they grow up, are going to be working in some aspect of the metaverse. And so they're going to have to get trained uh, in unique and different ways. So what I'd like to hear from you is, what are the top 10 jobs in the metaverse going to be in two thousand and forty? 2040?
0: <laughs> <Go>. <laughs> so, so first off, there are those who would claim we're already in the metaverse. Uh, this is just a simulation. So we've all been working in the metaverse. Uh, so all jobs are, are, you know, are virtual or are, are in that uh, virtual space. So first off, I, I, I will argue that, um, you know, I actually helped to, to host a set of retreats uh, focused on the future of the metaverse four or five years ago, uh, and uh, and asked a, a bunch of brainiacs in, in the arena at the time like what are the inflection points? What are you worried about? You know, so so I've definitely got some opinions about what that means, especially in the context of work. So to argue first off is Mr. Zuckerberg has a grand vision. <laughs> for how much work will eventually be done, you having a VR headset um, on our heads. And I think that's certainly a use case for work, but I'm gonna argue that by 2040, it will be something that will be used far more at inflection points rather than on a regular basis. And it will be used specifically to be able to solve certain problems or to be able to help uh, train people uh, to be able to develop new skills very, very rapidly. In, in the in the context of work, how we perform our work, there's actually a relatively small number of use cases where the technology as it exists today is extremely useful. Now, there's going to be much, much better technologies and experiences, but look at how fatigued we've gotten just from Zoom calls. Imagine what it would be like if you had to wear a headset all day long. Now, there's some, you know, young people, my my 25-year-old son's friends, you know, would To them, in some cases, being stuck in a video game for eight hours a day wouldn't be the worst thing, but for many of us, not so much. So uh, you asked about work roles. So first off, you're going to need facilitation. There's going to be people that are going to need to understand how to be able to get work done in, uh, in work that is more infused with virtual and augmented reality. Second is you're gonna need people to be able to translate. There's a lot of things we do in the real world that will need translation, whether it's what happens in a classroom, what happens in a brainstorming session. Third is that it's very likely that you're gonna need people that are very good Sherpas in helping people to be able to understand how to leverage these new technologies. We typically call them IT nowadays, but I think what we think of as traditional IT is going to bifurcate. And there's a whole bunch of the organization-facing part of IT, just as the organization-facing part of HR is going to dissolve into the organization. And those are going to be simply people that are better at helping others to be able to navigate the organization's culture, the work of the organization, the problems of the different stakeholders of the organization, and so on. So all of that can happen in a metaverse, but not exclusively. Those are all roles that are going to be useful, whether you are wearing a headset or not.
1: So, so it will be bolted on to certain existing processes because it's better for certain aspects of it, like training. Yeah, absolutely. Skill, something like yeah. that.
0: All well, right. or, or we'll, we'll invent a whole bunch of new processes that'll just be better. Remember that the first TV shows were people reading uh, radio scripts, <laughs> that, <laughs> right? That's, that's so, so that's what we do is we take the old process, we just insert it into this new technology and eventually we learn oh no you could do some really really different things that's why training is so critical in virtual reality is you can actually pick up new skills depending upon the arena far faster than you might have in the even in the physical world because you can take risks and you can have a different experience than you might have had
1: absolutely i want to return to this question of institutional knowledge, because it's one that I've sort of been thinking about as the conversation has progressed. And Thomas alluded to it earlier, and we touched on it briefly. But I wonder if there might be a real challenge in cultivating institutional knowledge or passing it on in an era in which it's just the expectation that you'll be working on individual gigs or individual parts of projects for six months or a year and then moving on. I think one possibility is just that organizations begin standardizing on a given way of doing things. So you just come into a job knowing you're going to use JIRA, you know, you're going to use, you know, this project management software, and that's just kind of how everyone does everything. Another possibility is that corporations work extremely hard in order to retain people so that the investment in their learning, the ways of doing things in the organization isn't squandered when they move on eight months later, or they may just not work that well. It may become less of a problem. They, they may document it in the metaverse. There may be chief knowledge officers. I, I could see several different ways of it going. So what are your thoughts on that?
0: So first off, I think all those use cases are true. Let's just look to some examples of organizations that have already done this, right? So uh, holocracies that are leaderless organizations or managerless organizations have been doing this uh, for quite some time. Um, Valve Software is sort of the poster child. and uh, And so basically, it's a set of agreements between people. And uh, when you're hired at, at uh, these types of companies, typically not hired for a specific role, you sort of walk about talking to people, all the problems are, and then you find the problems that you can dynamically bind around. Even Google nowadays, when it hires in its marketing department, you're not actually typically hired for a role. You date around in a bunch of different groups <laughs> until you find the right match. So you know, organizations are going to have more Processes like that. I guess I guess the the there's a there's a set of opportunities, and especially when you're talking about organizational memory. I'd say first off, let's step back and say why do you need that? So an organization over time, from from startup until the point that it finds its minimum viable product, and then is actually becomes an organization of scale. What it's doing is it's a trial and error machine. It's continually trying to figure out what it's trying to empathize with the needs of a customer it's trying to design new products and services, it's trying to iterate them based on customer feedback, and then eventually the market says, yep, that's what I want. And then once it's got that, it has a set of superpowers. That is the organization has a set of reasons that it exists, it has a set of skills that it applies to different problems, it has an aggregate mindset that is an underlying culture, and has a tool set that it uses. So that's actually the framing for my book, Mindset, Skill Set, and Tool Set. So what ends up happening is you want to retain the expertise, what you have learned about how to create value for the organization's stakeholders. And then you also want to continually be needing the needs of what my good friend Charlene Lee says in the disruption mindset is your future customer. That is, you're going to continually want to figure out how are we today going to meet the value, the needs of the value of that that, uh, customer of tomorrow. So organizational memory is critical in that framework of retaining the knowledge of what it was to create value for the organization stakeholders in the past, delivering that value today, but you also need to be able to create new value, and that organizational memory may actually be a tax on that future innovation. The innovator's dilemma, as Jeff Moore is fond of pointing out, is once you get really good at something, you have really limited incentives to continually change it. So organizational memory is useful up to a certain point, only so much as, as it is honoring the past, because that's what we all need to do. We None of us, you know, sort of suddenly appeared out of nowhere. We all were born and grew up to this point. You've got to honor the past through the lens of the present, the value you're delivering, but you've got to be able to continually innovate and deliver for the future. And so there's a variety of different ways to do that. Um, you talked about some great mechanisms. Some organizations, they think you just need to be more explicit about the work that people do. And actually, that uh, if, you, if you are continually communicating what you're doing, the problems you're solving, uh, you're going to stay better in alignment, which is one of the key skills I talk about a lot. And you're going to get a whole bunch of the memory of the organization instantiated in digits so that others could find it if they need it. Organizations like Asana do this, just baked into their DNA. As a matter of fact, Dustin Moskovitz, who co-founded the company, ex-Facebook, he spent two years designing the culture of the organization, the mindset of the organization, before he even began it because he wanted it to be a highly aligned organization that had a huge amount of the memory of the things that it had done so that people are continually, on a regular basis, putting the information about the problems that they're solving and how they're collaborating with their coworkers. Uh, online. The other ways to be able to retain a lot of that fabric of knowledge and history is to become a roll-up. Um, if, you, if you look at the way that uh, now um, Alphabet, that Google has constructed itself, is essentially it's a portfolio of companies. And if you do that right, what you've got is a bunch of humans that are in these areas where they're solving problems for their stakeholders, and then you you build soft walls between them so that they can move around a lot. So the gig process is not people flowing into your company and leaving it; it's actually having a portfolio of organizations where that flow Excellent. of people can actually be writ large, can be made You know that that knowledge can be maintained throughout the parent organization. And then finally, I'll just give you one more example, and that's Upwork. Upwork has at any given time about 2,500 people that work for the organization, and two-thirds to three-quarters of them are gig workers on their platforms, on their platforms, some of whom have been with some form of the company for 15 years. And so even though they have what you would think of as a loose binding to the organization, they've been there for so long that Balance in the relationship between the worker and the organization works for everybody, and yet they still have a tremendous amount of institutional memory that they can pass on, even though they're classified as gig workers. Talk to me about Dustin
1: Moskovitz designing the culture of Asana. I'm very curious as to how he did that.
0: So, one of the things that he uh, and his uh, co-founder, who was uh, from Google, found was that they were doing projects. And there, the barrier in doing those projects was alignment. Is you're uh, now we're doing this all re- you know, through distributed work, but even if you're in a heads-down product development project, you're going home, you're coding. You're, it was easy to get out of sync with other people, or if somebody's you know, not, if somebody is remote and uh, not in, in the your local geography. And so they said, why, how do we solve that? How do we keep people in alignment? How do we keep them where they're agreeing on the value that they're creating and what they're trying to deliver? You know this is on the during the rise of agile processes um and and so we know some of the underlying toolkit of being able to determine problems and you know and dynamically bind around them and you know use design thinking to design new solutions. But how do you keep people aligned? And so, What Dustin wanted to do was to design an organization that was delivering software that would help people to do this. And if you weren't aligned as an organization yourself, you're screwed. So they came up with a couple of different cultural anchors for the organization. The first was that they would eat their own dog food. So they're going to use this software. This is how they're going to manage themselves. And they did it from very early on. Second is that they were going to structure the work of the organization so that they were guaranteeing that they would reduce the amount of the flywheel effect that comes from not being in alignment by requiring initially every two months and then every three months, uh, and sometimes now every four months, the organization would hit the pause button. People throughout the organization would look back at what they'd done in the previous quarter would look forward to the next quarter, say, what were we trying to accomplish? What were our strategic goals? What did we do well? What did we not do well? What do we want to accomplish the next three quarters? Let's make sure everybody knows about those strategic goals of the organization. Everybody's team has its own strategic goals that are linked to those go- the organization. And every individual has strategic goals linked to the team and the organization. Everybody resynchronizes those over a period of a couple of days or a week. Heads down, on to the next. And they call these chapters, chapters in the organization's story. And so these are all decisions. <laughs> this isn't rocket science. It's just a commitment to relentless communication, constant transparency, and continuous alignment so that you never experience these big flywheel effects where everybody's focusing on the five-year plan and gets in two years and realizes, oh, wait a minute, we just lost the market.
2: Yeah, as companies add more and more streams of data coming in, they have more and more. I think of it like the whiskers of a rabbit or a, a cat that you can kind of feel your way into the the future because you you're, you you know what things are working and what things aren't working, and um, and it seems like there's there's less chances of corporations making that fatal mistake that that Kodak moment, if you will. Where they just screw up royally and um, start cratering? Um, do you see that as as realistic moving forward, or are we still going to have these these giant screw ups that we've had in the past? Will people stop making mistakes sometime soon? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely! I, AI will solve all that because AI is perfect, right? Artificial intelligence software always makes the right decision, so. Uh, so first off, I, I would love to share your optimism that many have taken the, <laughs> the innovator's dilemma message and, and, are, and are now continually nimble and adaptive organizations. And that is not my experience. So okay. I talked to a lot of C-suites around the world. And what you find is a lot of hopes, a lot of good intentions, uh, but the pandemic really laid bare how challenging it is for organizations to go through really rapid systemic change. That's why 85% of these cultural shifts fail is because we're human beings and we tend to bungee cord back to what we know. And, And if you're a large organization, you have a whole bunch of incentives baked in, starting with your shareholders. Your shareholders want consistent reporting. They want you to make your numbers. They want well. And that typically means managing things the way you've always done them because that's reliable and deliverable and uh, to you reduces risks. But the challenge with disruptive change, whether it is a virus or generalized artificial intelligence or unlimited fusion power, these whacks to the side of the head, are pretty likely to keep coming. And so we could say there's lots of organizations that have navigated the global pandemic quite well. And then if you get down and you talk to a bunch of their workers, what you'll find is that they reacted as quickly and as appropriately as they could, given their organizational cultures. But there are plenty of organizations that are still reeling from this dynamic of distributed work and more empowered workers, and they're just biding their time until they can get back to the old rules of work. And so, no, I don't think we're gonna stop making mistakes. What I do hope we've taken away is that so many of the mechanisms that we've been discussing about empowering workers, about empowering teams, about the purpose of the organization, about continually creating value for stakeholders, that those are all going to be great takeaways for those who lead in organizations. And they'll realize, listen, I got a tremendous amount of value from just asking good questions and empowering people to try to be as effective as possible in their work. And I didn't have to make all the decisions the way I thought I did in the past. So I believe that's a tremendous opportunity but I do believe there's still plenty of industries to be disrupted and to be dramatically disrupted by exponential technologies and exponential change. And I don't think that the pandemic has been the kind of training wheels that many of those who lead in organizations are gonna wish it had been.
1: What do you think some of the whacks to the side of the head that are coming down the pipeline are? What are the emerging technologies you think will do the most to disrupt existing industries?
0: So, so first off, I'll just talk about mechanics and that's supply chains uh, or supply webs is our understanding of the way that atoms, that bits turn into atoms and then atoms get moved around. We've gone through a pretty big sea change. I just don't, I do a lot of lectures to um, organizations with global supply chains. And what I tell them is I, I don't know that we've gotten the right takeaways from this process because really what you want is you want a new mindset for the way that bits get moved around the world and become atoms at the last possible minute that is i'm going to move the design for a product around to the place where it can be manufactured the closest to the possible production of need and then reduce the amount of time and distance that those atoms need to go to get in the hands of a customer i don't know that we've gotten all of those those takeaways so so the first Big whack to the side of the head is going to be how how we move atoms around is going to con you know th- there's a whole bunch of insights we still need to get and because what we're seeing right now with you know, runaway inflation and a lot of the supply chain breakdowns uh, that should have been the wake up call and I don't know that we've we've got enough of that yet so I think there's going to be a ton of new organizations that are going to build new abstraction layers new ways of essentially insulating the production of atoms from the moving around of bits, and they're gonna become so much more efficient at it. They're gonna use individual local suppliers to be able to manufacture pieces of products to be able to assemble them much more rapidly. Just in time And they're gonna be much faster, that's one. Yep. Second is um, you're, you're, you're definitely gonna see a bunch of disruptions around uh, robotic process automation and, um, and some of the, the leaps forward In uh, processes in what we traditionally have thought of as white-collar jobs, that is going to have a pretty significant impact on a lot of organizations that are not up to the task yet of being able to leverage the use of those technologies to be able to empower humans to make faster and better decisions. Sorry, were you going to say something else?
2: Um, I I just normally think of lots of Uh, jobs going away as we move forward, and the emerging technology is is uh, is causing some of that to happen. But I'd like to just uh, get your opinion. What do you what do you think is going to be the most disruptive technology uh, over the next decade?
0: So uh, it's it's hard to well. First off, it's it's hard not to lump. Everything that's related to uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence software into one big bin because the epiphany I often tell people is you know you know AI is not a thing right it's not it's not one category of software it's actually we put this blanket label over so many different kinds of technologies that we're uh, that we're using and uh, and we and we and we simply put them in a category and said well. Here's all the different factors, all the things that, that, that could be affected by it, but I but I think it's inevitable that we're going to have flavors of smart software that is going to be changing the dynamics of a lot of industries. Uh, and as a recovering journalist, I can say, look, you know, we were the canary in the coal mine. We saw what happened with this web thing, uh, and a lot of you know the the web the information platform stuff. Uh, We've seen what can happen, the biggest impact on employment that you can have. We lost 50% of all the workers in about two decades. And so it's pretty likely that we're going to see a bunch of use cases like that in different industries. Financial services firms, for instance, you're going to see the unbundling of so many of the former processes and practices of the application of capital to different problems. And, And there's no question that blockchain and its attendant technologies is going to be the enabler of a huge amount of that sea change because we're going to instantiate value, which we used to call a bank um, or a um, uh, financial services firm. We're going to instantiate value in a whole bunch of different ways that's going to allow a lot of upstarts to be able to engage and develop trust with customers so much more rapidly than in the past. So so the combination of AI and blockchain is gonna pull a whole bunch of capital and resources out of those existing firms in a pretty short period of time. So that's just another example of of where these technologies will have application on a vertical.
1: Fantastic, we are coming up uh, on the end here and I wanted to know if there's just any last minute thoughts you wanted to leave us with.
0: So one of the reasons that I wrote an article back in April of 2020 calling this the Great Reset is, uh, and, I, and I said it was gonna have really profound ripple effects on work, but on all these other aspects of our industries and our lives, is that I didn't think of this as a pause, I thought of this as actually a pivot point, it's a chance for for a lot of change. And I know we've all been trying to deal with change uh, that we're not in control of uh, now for, oh, it's gonna coming up on two years, and we run into this kind of change fatigue What I would urge everyone to do is to use whatever period you can to just take a deep breath, reset yourself, think about your connection to your work, think about your organization and its opportunities to be able to take advantage of disruptive change, and now lift your head up and look farther down the road. There's a lot of, you know, my friend John Hagel calls zoom in, zoom out. There's a lot of zoom in right now. We're very focused tactically. And what I really hope people are going to do is to take this opportunity to be able to look farther down the road, to think longer term what they want for their own careers and their work, longer term what they want for their organizations and the purpose of those organizations. And they see this as a chance to actually not just build back, but build back better, to to actually think of ways that they can have meaningful change to be able to, build for a world of constant and disruptive change that that would be my hope for everybody who's listening
1: i think that is a fantastic note to end on thanks so much for joining us today
2: yeah thanks thanks. Thanks a lot guys thanks gary this is great
0: this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suite